Everybody, welcome to another episode of Radio Teco. My name is Alexis Terrazas, Editor-in-Chief of El Teclote Newspaper, and I am here with my co-host and very good friend, El Teclote AV Editor, Monty Rossetti. Monty, how are you? I'm doing good. Thank you for asking. Uh, I see that you're wearing your, your Radio Teco hoodie, uh, which is cool, which is dope. Uh, you can't see it now because this is a podcast, but it looks cool. You look nice in that hoodie. Right on, man. Pretty soon you will be able to visit the online shop and get one yourself, everybody who's listening. So thank you, Monty, for that wonderful, wonderful keen observation. And speaking of, I guess, things that make me, I wear this hoodie because it makes me feel good. Um, I'm proud of the podcast that we do, and I'm proud of the guests and the topics that we have on. Uh, part of the, I'm proud of the guests that we have on and the topics that they talk about, and uh, no different here. Um, here we were able to bring on and invite Ian Furstenberg, who is a local journalist who has written extensively for El Tecolote, um, writes about a lot of different topics, but one of the ones that he has taken keen interest on, uh, or sorry, keen interest in, has been the uh, the San Francisco public bank movement. Um, Ian was, you know, was a product of our of collaborative collaborative class that we had at SF State with the uh, now retired. Per- brilliant professor uh, in journalism, John Funabiki at SF State, that journalism 575 class, which I was a product actually of uh, way back in 2009. I'm dating myself, pero ni modo. Um, but yeah, man, Ian um, took an interest in in writing about the public bank and, and the importance of it. So, and there have been some developments uh, here in 2021. So we just figured it was a really cool opportunity to, to bring him on and just break what all of that uh, breakdown, what all of that means. Yeah. Ian's definitely uh, a great guy who's done his, his homework and then some on this topic of the public bank. Um, and it's something that honestly uh, you think it would make more sense that it was more popular, but there's so many other political factors and, and richer people who help make sure that these stories don't get talked about. So uh, again, I think in, in line with a lot of other episodes, we like talking about things that might trigger some rich people. Honestly, that's one of my goals of every episode we do. If we trigger some rich person that says, don't talk about that, we want to keep on talking about it. So public bank definitely is a topic that I think after this episode, if you haven't heard about it, do some research about what it's all about. Because definitely, um, especially this last year of COVID, uh, we've been able to see kind of uh, society and how uh, how we're not really prepared to help each other out. You know, you'll see everyone say, you know, wear a mask, look out for each other. Hey, do this, look out for each other. But there's so many other aspects that we're not really looking out for each other. The public bank is definitely something that would help the greater good. And and again, I'm, I'm really happy that Ian took some time to, to talk to us about it. And let's just have a listen to the episode. Okay, everybody, welcome to another episode of Radio Teco. We're really excited to have our guest, Ian Furstenberg. And Ian, before I go on a whole rant about how excited I am to have you on, tell us how you're doing today. Good. I, I really appreciate you guys having me on. Um, yeah, Lex, it's it's always a pleasure to work with you, Monty. It's nice time virtually meeting you. Um, but yeah, you guys have always been 
spectacular about uh, working with me with uh, over overworded pieces. So I really appreciate it, guys. <laughs> no, that's dope, man. Monty doesn't have to deal with the overworded pieces, but he'll have to deal with editing this episode. Monty, how you doing today, man? Man, I'm doing good. And honestly, if this episode goes overworded, it's fine because it's a topic that's much needed. And I think more of us need more information on public banking. So I'm excited for this. Maybe not excited for the edit, but the end goal will be great. Cool. Well, Ian, before I ask you my first question, I want to let the readers or the listeners know um, that you were a member of the uh, Journalism 575 class a few years ago that was taught at SF State by um, that now retired Professor John Funabiki. And that class was absolutely spectacular. The students were incredibly talented. But in that class, you stood out because you were the only person that was like hyper, hyper interested in covering with something I didn't know at the time. And that's the San Francisco Public Bank. And, um, and I'm glad you did it because even at the time and even now, there isn't a whole lot of like mainstream press um, coverage on it. Um, so before, I, I just wanted to kind of preface that and you've written plenty of uh, pieces. And if you, you know, those listening want to check them out, you could go to eltecolote.org and check out all of Ian's, um, um, you know, SF Public Bank pieces. But for the people who don't know what this is, break it down for us, man. <laughs> what is a, a public bank and, and how does it work? Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you guys asked. And I think uh, before doing my whole spiel, like you guys are both absolutely right where it's like, I've brought this up with other people just like casually or even like in a more professional setting. And it's very rare that people have like heard about this before. And it seems pretty lax and like mainstream coverage. So a huge credit to you guys there for yeah, like working working through this with me as well. Um, basically, a public bank is the idea that like, a city's municipal funds shouldn't be controlled by like a private bank. Which like sounds kind of standard, you know, and like I think especially to folks like us is like, well, yeah, of course, right? But like as I talk about in these pieces and, and as I've talked about before, like there are uh, really, really powerful interests that are like in opposition to this. Um, and I don't like – I hesitate to like frame it that way because it does seem somewhat conspiratorial. But like taking the conspiracy aspect like out of this – a bank, right, like Citibank, for example, which controls a huge portions of, uh, I, I believe, SF State or SF's um, eleven billion dollar annual general fund, uh, is not trying to like have their profits go down the the, the tube, so to speak. Um, and Wells Fargo controls a portion of the city's municipal funds as well. But the idea is generally to give like democratic uh, authority, if you will, over the city's municipal funds, right? Because like we're all the people that pay for those like uh, funds basically right through revenue taxes, sales taxes, uh, parking fines, the litany of other like uh, municipal revenue, right. Which is pretty broad scope, especially in a city like San Francisco. Um, and well, I, I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but like the revealing aspect I think was, was seeing how, uh, certain like financial entities in Sacramento and in San Francisco kind of responded to the public bank push um, in the city, and then even more generally, like in the uh, across the state, right? Like with AB um, eight five seven. Yeah. So let's uh, let's split the rich people from the rest of us. Uh, why is a public bank beneficial for the rest of us here um, that live or work or whatever in San Francisco? What's the benefit? Yeah. Uh, well, and it's a good question, right? Because like no one's really going to get with this if they don't have like clear benefits. But basically like 
a public bank would collateralize like existing small business loans. So, you know, to speak generally, and like, I'm not like, you know, in the weeds with all the financial stuff, but like small businesses have a harder time getting like loans that they can pay back, right? Loans with like reasonable interest rates, right? Because most of the time they go to like a financial institution like Wells Fargo or Citibank that pitch them a loan with an incredibly high interest rate. So by the time they like, pay back the principal, they owe double in interest, right? And that's like, that makes it impossible for any small business owner to run, uh, you know, like a a market or like a record shop or whatever it may be. Um, And a a public bank would basically be a, a financial institution, right? Not that you would go like withdraw money from as you would like an ATM, but then would collateralize like small business loans among like credit unions, right? And so like that part is really crucial and I think really overlooked because for it to be successful, you need to have it collateralized with like the existing uh, loans, right? With the existing like credit union loans, right? So that while it like simultaneously is supporting like the small business owners, it's also supporting like these smaller, um, more localized like financial institutions, right? Like credit unions, right? Which like are far less insidious and far more, uh, far less hostile to like democratic controls of banking than Wells Fargo or Citibank is. Now, Ian, like going as somebody who's like read all of your pieces and proofread them, right, for the paper, oftentimes over word, but that's cool. <laughs> I'm, I'm generally okay with that. Um, you've interviewed like numerous people um, over the years, right? Jackie Fielder, Curtis Wu. Um, but tell us a little bit about, for those of who don't know, like the origin story of how like this, you know, how the creation of a public bank entered San Francisco. Tell us a little about that process and, and yeah, how it started, because I feel like that origin story is really critical and, and really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're spot on. And Lex, like that ties into the bigger thing of like public banking, I think is such like a, um, I guess the parlance of the times is like a very intersectional issue, right? Because it like, it affects like so many different things in terms of like climate change, right? Or like political representation. Um, And so, yeah, like basically the origin story in San Francisco is a really interesting one. Like Jackie Fielder, who I've talked to like extensively and is a truly incredible person, an excellent source. um, She was on like the front lines of the uh, No Dapple protest in 2015, which like uh, for all of us who have been, you know, um, involved in this for for a number of years, they were pretty hostile and pretty, pretty violent at times uh, where like there was private security companies that came out and met face to face with protesters in the middle of this like wilderness um, and like, you know, responded with rubber bullets and stuff like that. Um, Jackie being the industrious and incredibly like insightful woman that she is took those experiences and brought them kind of back to San Francisco with her. Um, And generally as she's explained it to me, she looked at it as like, well, it's difficult to stop like a pipeline like this or kind of any pipeline process without like hitting them where it hurts, right? Like stopping like the money, so to speak. Um, And that through like an incredibly diligent effort um, and a lot of intense work with Curtis eventually morphed into the San Francisco Public Bank Alliance, um, which is basically like an advocacy group that's worked really, really intensely with the city to draft up like a way that a public bank would work in San Francisco. And there were a couple of like pretty massive hurdles that had to be jumped over first, right? Like legislatively, right? Um, And one of the biggest ones was that, and this is something that always kind of like blows my mind, 
is that it was actually illegal to establish a public bank in San Francisco, <laughs> as it was in many other municipalities, right? Because, uh, yeah, it, it's somewhat long-winded, but there, there was specific laws in place that made it untenable and illegal for a public bank to be established, which, like, yeah, again, speaks to the nature of, like, this whole beast. Um, but that was, like, kind of the foremost hurdle that Jackie and Curtis had to jump after they had established the San Francisco Public Bank Alliance in, like, the late uh, stages of 2015 after the, the No Dapple protests. Ian, I almost want to ask the stupid question of why is there so many like obstacles and this thing that seems so obvious, why isn't it happening? And I th you, you did mention it before. I mean, when you have big banks and there's a lot of there's a lot of politics being played to kind of squash this idea. But let's go even further back as to who created the idea of a public bank, because San Francisco isn't the only place that is talking about public bank. There's actually uh, other examples of a public bank that's actually working here in the United States. Can you talk to us about how that was created and kind of the creation of public bank in general? Yeah, yeah, yeah Monty. Uh, also a great question. Um, so public banking in the States uh, has, has kind of an interesting history because quietly, um, it's been an incredible success story, right? There's a, a public bank in, in North Dakota, right? The, the Bank of North Dakota. And they were established um, about 100 years ago or so, 1919. Um, and they were established as a way for small farmers in the area to uh, remain solvent, basically, in the throes of like really intense ecological crisis, right? In North Dakota, it was like pretty swept over with like a series of like small dust bowls and stuff like that at the time. But it basically made it uh, incredibly difficult for farmers there, like smaller farmers, less like industrial sized farmers to remain uh, competitive in a sense. And so the Bank of North Dakota was established as a way to collateralize these like agricultural loans for smaller farmers in the area. Um, and it's been chugging right along for 100 years. Um, it's certainly not uh, publicized, right? Like it's not very talked about because ordinarily something that's that successful and that like combative to the financial industry would be like very loudly proclaimed. Right. Um, and yet we don't really hear that much about it. Um, and I think that I, yeah, I, I, I do really think that that's reflective of the, the core issues of this, um, really divisive kind of like, well, divisive, if you're like a rich person, um, like political like solution here. Right. Because like, the uh, the banks, like you know, these large financial institutions, have no interest in um, something that would uh, hit their bottom lines and hit their bottom lines like really hard, um, as it would like a, a municipal kind of democratic takeover, because like you know, financial institutions like Wells Fargo and Citibank, they do make plenty of money scamming like folks like me or folks like all of us, right? But like their real check comes from cities and like municipalities, right? Because like as much money as I'll ever make in my lifetime dwarfs what San Francisco's yearly general fund is, right? Just like doesn't even compare. Um, and so these institutions are incredibly resistant to anything that would like meaningfully hit their bottom line as something like public banking really, really, really would. 
Um, and I think the reason the Bank of North Dakota is really not talked about or like certainly not talked about as much as uh, I would expect, right, is because like it presents a very clear and very understandable uh, alternative to banking that uh, large like kind of corporate financial institutions are absolutely resistant to. They do not want any part of that. Well, it's funny before Alexis chimes in, it's funny because actually one thing I learned this tax season was that you can do your taxes on the IRS's website for free. <laughs> and I found that out after I already paid money for somebody else to do my freaking taxes. And man, it's amazing to your point. And there was an interview at some podcast, we, not ours, unfortunately, but another one uh, where they asked somebody, why don't you advertise this? It's because they don't put money into this because there's other companies that are bigger and they it's it's capitalism flexing its muscle and it's sickening, my personal opinion. <laughs> Bro, what? I didn't even know you could do this on like yeah, the IRS's it, website. What? Just, like, just <laughs> like the Bank of North Dakota is not publicized, they're not going to publicize something that helps you out like the IRS doing your own taxes because there's no financial gain for these bigger, bigger muscles, I guess. Wow. Well, thanks, Monty, for that. Too late. Sorry. (laughs) Jeez, Louise. Okay. Anyway, my question, man. Uh, Ian, the last piece you wrote for us um, on the Asset Public Bank was in March of this year. Now, that was right around the time. I mean, yeah, it was right around the time we were approaching like a year of being like in shelter in place. And, you know, anybody who's wanted to listen to me, I've kind of said, that this pandemic has really kind of ripped the veil off of all of the inequities that have always existed here in this country, you know? Um, so with all of the suffering that we've seen, not just like people dying, not people like just, not just people having to like being forced to go out and make a living, but depleting their savings, going into debt, you know, accumulating all of this, all of these, you know, incredible um, distressing, like kind of financial hardships, you know, where does like the creation of a San Francisco public bank currently, uh, currently stand right now as, as you know it? Yeah. Uh, well, and it's a good question, right? Cause the critical question is like, how close are we? Right. Um, as kind of the, the last like movements in March indicated, um, it's certainly getting closer than it has been before, but it's still like a very long haul, right? Like the next, the, the next stages would basically be establishing an MFC, which is like a municipal finance corporation, which would evaluate the like viability and uh, more importantly, like the actual process of establishing a public bank in San Francisco. Uh, and this kind of tethers back to a previous report by the city treasurer and like a bunch of a kind of like interesting secondary story to this as well. But what was originally put forward by the city's report um, in 2019 was a series of models that didn't really reflect what the San Francisco Public Bank Alliance felt was the easiest and most direct kind of uh, ramp up to a public bank. And so uh, what's what's in the process now in San Francisco is basically establishing the MFC, which would then develop the business plan that would uh, guide the public bank, right? And so the MFC would be made up of seven people with uh, four community representatives and three, well, okay. I confuse the numbers quite often because uh, I'm ditzy at at times, but it's either uh, three community representatives and four banking experts or vice versa. But I know it's seven people. Um, (laughs) I I will have to double check my notes and get back to you guys on that. But um, the group of like the seven member group would basically 
draft up a business plan that would then um, be the guide, so to speak, for a future public bank in the city. And, and, and that component is really critical because like the way I think even well-intentioned people will spin this at times is that, well, you know, it's a great idea, right? But it's not like viable, like how are you going to do it, right? And I, I'm not here to criticize like the intention of those arguments one way or the other. Frankly, it, it doesn't matter to me, but it is viable. The issue is like being able to dedicate the resources and the appropriate representatives to figure out how it's viable, right? Not immediately discredited as something that's like, oh, too idyllic. Because it's it's not. It's absolutely not. Like there is uh, uh, an, an absolute uh, effectiveness to this. And I think like this is somewhat uh, off topic, but like beyond just effective, like this is profitable. It would be in the interest of the city and the people of the city to have a public bank, right? Because like just, you know, uh, without diving too much into the weeds, like – the city has to pay Citibank or Wells Fargo a, a, a fee, right, to manage their general fund every year, right? You wouldn't have to, like, not you, the, the city wouldn't have to pay that if the, uh, you know, managing financial entity was a public bank. And I think, like, you know, despite uh, how we personally might interact with, like, fees or, like, banking fees, like, generally, those banking fees that Citibank will slap on a city are huge, they are massive and like massively outsize any kind of like overdraft fee that I get for being dumb or whatever it is. Like that's where they get a bunch of money. And if you hit them, like, you know, if you take away like that specific aspect, right? Like the fees alone, it is incredibly profitable for the city in a way that I think is like, I don't really take this term lightly, but is like genuinely revolutionary. Like it does have an opportunity to rework the city for like uh the the workers of, of san francisco in a way that like i haven't seen any other opportunities in my lifetime um so correct me if i'm wrong so the plan uh presented by the coalition and i think you kind of mentioned it is a process that will take a little bit of time right like it's it's a it's a it's a longer process um and then the plan that was proposed by the san francisco's treasurer's office was something that would like take like a week for it to like change and that was what was presented in 2019 so Explain to us a little bit why there is why the coalition wasn't really supportive of what was offered by the treasurer's office, and you know, like, oh, this, you know, as an outsider, and I'll I'll say myself as an outsider, you're like, this is a great plan, and you know what, let's stick it to the big banks as soon as possible. Why was the treasurer's office's pr proposition so kind of far off and not really accepted by the coalition? Monty, that's a really good question and a really good point too. Like, uh, so. The coalition took issue with the way that the treasurer's office uh, set up the models, right? And so the report, which uh, I've gone over like extensively in, in, a, in a couple of earlier rep uh, reports for El Teclote, like it presented three models that basically uh, outlined like the uh, ramp up, if you will, for the public bank. And those three models failed to incorporate one key aspect that the coalition had put forward in a number of meetings with uh, the uh, Treasury's committee that, that, that like basically analyzed the viability for a lot of this. And uh, in one of the meetings, like one of the, the second to last or the last meeting that I was sitting in on uh, with Jackie and Curtis Wu, um, both Jackie and Curtis Wu brought up like as the coalition we've uh, expressed like doubts about the way that these models are organized, right? Because the treasurer's office presented something that as Monty accurately pointed out would be uh, 
solvent as, as they saw it in like a week. Right. And the, the coalition took issue with that because it's essentially asking like a, a, a financial institution that does not have the capital to take over billions of dollars. Right. And, and, and you're <laughs> in many senses setting that institution up for failure. Um, and again, like I'm not here to speculate at all about like the intentions of the treasurer's committee. And again, it's not really consequential to me. It doesn't really matter. But I don't think that that's an effective way to uh, try and institute a public bank in the city. And I think a much more effective way is shown by the uh, the uh, public bank alliance model, which is which they uh, coined as like the 1.5 model, right? Because it was the treasurer's office had it one, two, and three. And I think Curtis and Sushil Jacobs actually accurately talked about it as like kind of an in-between where you would slowly ramp up the amount of control that this public bank would have over the city's general uh, and municipal funds as a whole, right? And what that would allow is a certain room for um, growth, right, of like capital that the public bank would need to remain solvent and remain successful, you know, like a few years down the line. And that would be like a different timeline, right? So instead of the treasurer's report, which put forward like, oh, we're going to do like basically, yeah, basically like a week, like a week transition, right? It would be a lot longer. It would be like, three to four years, which I know is like, well, why can't we just do it now? And I understand that inclination. Absolutely. But the issue is like to make it successful, like long term, you need to have something that ramps up to it, right? Because like, you can't just like, you can't take over the managerial duties of something as large as San Francisco's general fund over the course of a week, right? You need the capital to be able to do so. And a, a, a timeline of like three to four years would allow for that ramp up uh, in, in like a viable way, right? In, in a way that would make it successful long term, and that was that's why I was uh, excuse me, that's why I was really excited with the um, reinvestment in San Francisco ordinance put forward by Dean Preston at the end of March, because it to me uh, appears that the city is starting to recognize what uh, Jackie Fielder and Curtis Wu have been talking about for for years now about like this really can work in San Francisco, but we have to do it appropriately right we have to give this institution the uh capital to be successful in something as big as an endeavor as like taking over the city's municipal funds you mentioned something earlier ian you mentioned the 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 phrase revolutionary and you know how you were cautiously like kind of uh you know you're you were cautious about mentioning that, right? Because like, I guess it, it tends to be overused a lot. But we are in a very critical time, you know? Um, I mean, the, the reason why, you know, even, you know, Jackie going to uh, to Standing Rock and then coming back, you know, I mean, a lot of it was, yeah, standing up for like, you know, sovereign people's land, right? Stolen land. But also like to, the act of like building a pipeline could, you know, directly contributes to, uh, to the, the desecration of like the environment. You know, um, you know, when you consider climate change, when you consider, you know, the the rapidly like or not even rapid, it's it's already here. The militarization of our police forces, which over police us and, and, and oftentimes kill us at, at uh, you know, uh, folks of like our, our black community at disproportionate rates. Um, and even like this really kind of continuing upward trajectory of like inequity in this country why is like now the time why is this why is this such an critical critical thing to do 
uh, like right, I guess right now, given everything that's happening, not just in this country, but you know, on, in the world. Yeah, Lex, that's like a, that's an incredible question and, and a very poignant one. Um, I think the the coronavirus is like really, as you accurately put, like laid bare all of these inequities um, in American society and like across the world, right? Like if you're wealthy and connected, you have an easier time recovering from, you know, uh, unemployment or yeah, the, the woes of like coronavirus, right? Or the woes of a global pandemic, whatever it may be. And I think the reason public banking is so critical now, and the reason I'm somewhat hesitant to use that word, like lightly, uh, is that it, it, it has the potential to even the playing field um, in a really incredible way. And like, by no means would that remedy uh, all the woes of capitalism, right? Like it's, it's a global system that is incredibly entrenched and incredibly powerful. Um, but it, it is a really serious pushback in a way that, again, like I haven't really seen in my lifetime. Um, and it allows uh, an opportunity for like a better and stronger fight, right? And by no means is this like the end stage, right? Like this would be um, a, an incredibly huge and monumental step, right? But uh, just that, like a step that in, in a very, very lengthy path towards um, a, a, a more equitable and like less uh, brutal society than we live in now. And I think like, to be frank, like we all deserve like a chance at that. Um, and like, despite what, you know, I'm sure like many, um, rich people or wealthy institutions might believe like everyone deserves a chance at that. Like no matter where you come from or like what your background is or what language you speak or who you believe your God is like, it, it, it doesn't matter. And I think like there, there was that really like unnerving article about like how much money billionaires made during the pandemic and like stuff like that, that just gets so like uncritically published in uh in 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 like the institutional media um yeah like really gets me in a certain regard because i don't like i don't see how you can make how you can report that in good faith and then not also report on like something like the public bank movement right which like notably and and you know we haven't touched on this but it's been a very very uh dense interview already like the public bank movement is popular across the country. It's not just like in the crazy liberal San Francisco, you know what I mean? Like Philadelphia is on board, like New York's on board, like uh, LA has a very, very strong movement as well. And like, yes, these are like metropolitan democratic cities, but like distinctly less uh, harsh left wing is like, you know, San Francisco is thought of nationally. Um, and so like, yeah, even uh, like the, the national push is even like more decentralized than that now. Like, Julian LaRosa is on the um, communications team for like the uh, national public bank push, which has been supported by Ayanna Presley and like a couple of other younger, uh, I believe house representatives. Um, and I, I believe one Senate member or one Senator as well. But uh, it, it, it's something that I think uh, a lot of people like of our political delineation or like age group are realizing is like a very direct way to combat like, yeah, the, the harsh reality of what capitalism is now, because like, uh, yeah, like I hesitate to get this grim all the time, but like, there's no way that the coronavirus pandemic, like makes anything easier for working people like in San Francisco or across the world. Like it, it lays bare 
all of the horrific, horrific stuff that like the ruling class is able to get away with and offers really no protections or like liminal protections to working people of San Francisco and of like the nation and the world as a whole. And I think like, you know, I, it, it, it is dangerous in its own right to like, get carried away with like kind of very optimistic, optimistic ideas of this, but like public banking does present a really, really uh, staunch like pushback against this like brutality that, that in my opinion is, is only going to get worse. Like it's only going to get like more daunting and more horrifying. Um, and, and I think like <laughs> to kind of circle back to what Lex was talking about, like that was kind of one of the things that always pushed me to like report on this, you know? And like, even if like nobody reads it, which like, thank God for El Tecolote and you guys like people do, which is awesome. Um, it's like worth it just for me to like yell into the void about something like this, because it's like, I would feel so I'd feel so guilty and like bullshit if I didn't um, because like this really does present an incredible opportunity to push back against the just horrible, horrible nature of the way capitalism is capitalism exists in our society. And like, especially in San Francisco where, yeah, like these companies that like pay very minuscule rent in downtown, right. Are set up shop right next to like throws of people who are like out of work and living on the streets. And like, I don't, I don't know how you see that and don't like get mad. Like, I don't know how you see that and don't like have to feel like you need to do something, you know? And like, it's not like a condemnation of people who feel like hopeless because like, I've certainly felt that way and I'm sure everyone else has too. But like, I think the public bank movement as a whole, like both in San Francisco and nationally provides people like, a sense of hope, you know? Um, and as cheesy as it is, like that, that can really amount to something that really can. And like, um, you know, particularly in San Francisco, like it's been really incredible to see how far the movement has gotten just over the past few years, but like how far I really think this, this push can go, um, in San Francisco. It's really exciting. Yeah. I'm, I'm sitting here listening to you and there's like a million and one different things I want to say and uh, not enough time to, to go and, and say, but I, I do agree with you. The, the fact about the experiences that we've all been through this, this year. I mean, some people have had it worse, um, definitely worse than, than myself. I, you know, I'll speak for myself. Um, and this, what we're talking about the public bank is, is something that can help out a lot of people, um, financially and, and, and in a lot of other ways. I mean, cause also if you're dealing issues financial issues, you're dealing with stress, there's a mental aspect to, that this can also be linked to, to help you out with. Um, I think my last or the, the last question here for for this episode, and again, I want to thank you for your time and, and being able to talk to us about this. Um, the last question for, for this is, where can people go on social media or on the interwebs or wherever, um, you know, uh, where can people go to find more information, to be updated? Who should they follow on Twitter, on Instagram? Give us a list of everything because we we want this to be kind of a call to action. This isn't just, hey, we're having a conversation about, about the public bank. Cool. And then we, we move on from this. We also want to have you on again to, to kind of give us an update about everything. But yes, my question is, where can we go to move this conversation along? Yeah, absolutely. And I would love to come back on, guys. Absolutely. Um, you guys rock. I uh <laughs> The, the best way and like the kind of like interlude that I've always found is like Jackie Fielder and Curtis Wu, both on Twitter are like, uh, you know, still very entrenched in like this uh, public bank fight. And they are like excellent follows like Curtis posts lovely cat content all the time, which I love. Uh, but uh, they also are like, yeah, very, very like 
entrenched in kind of the legislation with, with that, that uh, is continuing with this, especially in San Francisco, but Jackie a little bit more so um, in the statewide push. Um, Julian LaRosa is also very uh, tethered to the national push, right? And they kind of like, as I was talking about earlier, that decentralized movement to push for a national bank or uh, to, uh, uh, to nationally push for a public bank, excuse me. Um, but also the San Francisco Public Bank Alliance is like an excellent resource. Um, I think Jackie's uh, political action committee Daybreak Pack is also like an excellent follow. Um, and her podcast is very fun um, as well. And like without, uh, you know, being too, um, too much of a kiss ass here, like you guys, you guys do an incredible job on like covering issues in, in the city that like I don't see covered anywhere else. And like I talked to Lex about this like years ago when I was in uh, the, the excellent John Funabiki's class. But like the reason like I take such pride in, in, in reporting like with you guys and working with you guys is because of like that, that name really means something in San Francisco. And like it means something nationally too. Like uh, it, to be, to have the pedigree that you guys do um, and like to have the, the kind of history and chops that you guys do, like it's incredibly impressive. And that's why like, I'm always uh, absolutely ecstatic to like work with you guys and like, have my name associated with the El Tecolote masthead um, because like there's coverage, like there's so much coverage in, in El Tecolote that is not reciprocated across like the city's institutional press, which like, again, isn't a condemnation of them in general, but like a testament to the incredible work uh, and, and, and excellent diligent work that you guys do as, as a publication. Thank you. I think Alexis, I think we found a, our new ad to promote El Tecolote <laughs> in the podcast. <laughs> I think oh, yeah. so, man. Um, Brother Ian, I just want to say thank you so much for just being who you are, taking an interest uh, in this. You know, I, I I hope, I hope and hope that there are more people that are passionate about the work that they do. You know, I, I feel like I, in journalism, I think the best journalism comes from those who are passionate about what they do. Oftentimes that's labeled um, or biased but whatever that's a conversation for another day that i'd love to get your thoughts on but yeah thank you for doing what you do um and i look forward to reading more of your stuff and thank you so much for joining us today ian i really appreciate it absolutely guys i really appreciate it and i'm really really stoked i've loved the podcast so far and make me feel like a real local celebrity with this one so <laughs> i appreciate it Thank you for listening to Radio Teco, the podcast of El Tecolote, California's longest-running bilingual community Latino newspaper. If you enjoyed listening to this episode and are looking for more of our content, please visit our website, eltecolote.org. And if you value bilingual storytelling and would like to support our next 50 years of community journalism, please consider making a donation or sign up to volunteer. <laughs>